it is raining. Or maybe it's not raining, but I am crying so hard that my memory requires windshield wipers to hone its field of vision. I am in a state, but I am also in a car, so I'm stopping at traffic lights and watching out for pedestrians. And I'm talking out loud to myself, repeating two short sentences in a spin cycle of fear and self-loathing. I'm sorry, I have failed. I'm sorry, I have failed. I'm sorry. I drive and I cry and I chant this mantra to the rhythm of the rain, or perhaps into the blinding sunshine. Does it matter? I have no idea who I'm apologising to, but I know without a shadow of a doubt what I'm apologising for. I have failed. The Year My Brain Broke, a speech delivered by Claire Wright at the Wheeler Centre in Melbourne on the 30th of July 2014, nearly nine years ago to the day. And it's a speech about mental health. It's about Claire descending into very difficult times after the birth of her third child, about postnatal depression, depression more generally. And it's a a really honest chat and the words of the speech themselves are, are so meaningful and beautiful in terms of identifying what can happen with this medical thing that is depression. And I've mentioned it before, but My wife and I have lost two members of our bridal party to suicide, to death by suicide, and and Claire was talking about how close she came and the help of a doctor that dragged her back into an upright position. We shall fight on the beaches, we shall fight on the landing grounds, we shall fight in the fields. If you lay down with dogs, you get fleas. Fraud, sham and hypocrisy. Change within the system. The hollow man of anger and bitterness all must be left to a bygone age. I understand victory. I understand sacrifice. Speak over. I may not get there with you. But we as a people will get to the promised land. Speak over. Tony Wilson. Hello and welcome to the Speak Ola podcast. It is episode 47. Been a while since episode 46. And I'm out the back of my office at the Abbotsford Convent. High ceilings in there, so it gets all echoey. So I'm El Fresco, out in the grounds, looking at the rotunda. A little bit of a breeze blowing. Hopefully we won't get too many planes. But as I mentioned in the intro, this is a great chat, a really brilliant speech, and Claire Wright is a wonderful interviewee. I had her on episode 46 of the podcast, You Daughters of Freedom, and it was Professor Claire Wright in her capacity as an Australian history expert talking about Vida Goldstein's campaign launch speech in 1903. But this topic today is a much more emotive one. It's Claire's own battle with mental health and with depression. And this occurred 16 or so years ago after the birth of Claire's third child. 
And she gave a speech at the Wheeler Centre that, as she says, is, is perhaps the most remarked upon bit of work that she's ever produced in, in a quite remarkable writing and speaking and academic career. Claire's best-selling history book, The Forgotten Heroes of Eureka, was a stellar prize winner. And her book, You Daughters of Freedom, which gave the title of the previous Speakola episode, is a beauty as well. She's a terrific writer, a great presenter. I saw her on TV just last week with John Safran wandering around Sovereign Hill. And that's a great episode as well. Look that up on SBS On Demand. Who the bloody hell are we? John Safran presenting the unknown Jewish history of Australia with a little bit of help from Claire Wright. It has been a little while since the last episode. I've been busy on my film, Pushkas in Australia. Look up Good One Wilson and Pushkas in Australia if you want to see the trailer. And I've also been writing my book, Yabby the life story of Hawthorne and St Kilda and Richmond coach Alan Jeans. And it's been very hard to get to my virtually non-paying, voluntary, creative podcast jobs like this one. But if you do want me to get paid a little bit for it, it might make me more inclined to do it. And the way to do that is patreon.com forward slash speakola or upgrade to paid if you're one of the 5,700 people who get my speakola newsletter. And if you don't want to sign up to anything regular, but you do just want to make a donation, you can just go to speakola.com forward slash donate. Well, I'm hearing enough planes overhead to convince me to never record El Fresco again. But it is beautiful here. A green pocket of inner city urban Melbourne with birds fluttering, a little bit of music spilling out of the convent windows the bike path, the Collingwood Children's Farm, and given the themes we're discussing, it's good to remember the beauty in the world. With my friend Daff, who, as I chatted with Richard Feither about on the Conversations podcast I did with him in May of 2020, he's very much the inspiration for this podcast and speeches project. We had no chance. We didn't know about his depression, and he couldn't cope with it, and we lost him with my wife's cousin Trish. We did know about her depression and spent years fielding and worrying and wondering if she would, and in the end she did. You know, very different situations, but the same disease and the same horrible outcome. So this chat with Claire has a happy ending. She's well and with us, and anyone who's feeling down and worried and suicidal give your friends a chance because it's devastating being left without the number again lifeline one three double one one four I'm here with Professor Claire Wright, and we've had you on before, Claire, talking about Vida Goldstein, but it's not right to have Speakola and you and not do one of your wonderful speeches. So thanks for coming on to talk about one of your speeches. I'm delighted to be back, Tony. Thanks for having me. And this speech, this is a Wheeler Centre speech. I was collecting Speakola speeches back in 2016 and 2017, and people were suggesting them from far and wide, and several people sent me this speech 
from the Wheeler Centre. It was an it was a, it was an event called Epic Fail. Can you tell us about this <laughs> Epic Fail concept? Tony, I was sitting at my desk here at La Trobe University when I got a call from the program manager at the Wheeler Centre who asked me to participate in this event called Epic Fail. And she described it as eight highly successful people getting up on stage and talking for 10 minutes about a moment of failure in their life. And although I would have liked to consider that I would have nothing to talk about, I knew exactly what I needed to talk about the moment that phone call came. And so I immediately agreed. And by that afternoon, I'd written the speech. Wow. And what I needed to say was something that I had never actually anticipated speaking publicly about at all. So the speech was in 2014. Um, I was riding high. I had just won the Stella Prize and I was starting to get invitations to writers' events and, you know, I was starting to have a kind of public presence in a way that I, that I hadn't really as, a, as an academic previously. But I knew what I needed to say to this new burgeoning audience of mine was to talk about something that had happened to me seven years earlier when I had had a complete nervous breakdown. And some of my friends and family obviously knew about that. And it was not something that I particularly hid in my life when I would talk to people. I was, I was reasonably open about it. I wanted to be because I didn't want to stigmatise mental illness. But I had never considered going public or outing myself in this kind of way. I had never actually written about myself personally before. All of my output had essentially been my professional output. My, my writing as an historian, uh, my writing as a social commentator, opinion pieces about issues. I had never bared my soul or my heart or anything about my family life. I'd had a really hard line that I wasn't going to write about my family because they weren't the subject of my work or my investigations. And yet here in this moment, I knew without doubt that I had to say these things out loud. Was it because you knew that it was, like it's a really gripping story and so was the storyteller and you going, I can't do better than this. This is my, if I had to talk about epic fail, this is my moment where I feel that covers it and I will have them in, you know, they'll be gripped. Or was it, I want to do something with this. There's a utility to talking about this or... I can be, for it's a bit of a wanky word, but I can be a leader with this. I had no idea of what the impact might be. I had no idea what effect it might have on, on an audience. I had no sense of how I wanted to influence an audience. Uh, I, I didn't know where it would land. That was the furthest thing from my mind. I just knew I had to say it. And I didn't know that I needed to say it until that phone call and those words that came out of the program manager's mouth, epic fail, all of a sudden I knew that it was the only thing I had to say. 
And and do you remember riding it? I can imagine it's it's really quite beautiful, especially there's a switch that turns in this piece. So you start off with your CV, your, your, your fairly glittering CV, CV about things that have gone right for you, you know, school marks and doctorates and you know, academic scholarships and all this sort of stuff. And it's, and you lay it on reasonably thick and you can almost hear the, the audience laughing at it because not... But you're setting something up, aren't you? Yeah. Um, the only way to set up for the fall is to set up the apparatus beforehand. I had to, I had to set up the tightrope, the high-rise the high that I was teetering up above before I could uh, let anybody know how far I had to fall. Mm. And when you were writing it, do you remember, like, did you... Did you struggle with it? Was it revisiting that time? Did you, I mean, I wrote a eulogy once and remember sort of breaking down during the writing of it. Were you sufficiently recovered from what, from the 2007 you? Could 2014 you revisit it on the page comfortably? Completely. It wasn't triggering in any way. Uh, probably it was cathartic. Um, I'd maybe say therapeutic, except I'd done so much fucking therapy by then that um, I didn't need the piece of writing to do that, in a sense. I just knew that I needed to be honest, that I either had to not give the speech at all, because anything else that I would say, if I was going to say yes to that program director, would be um, spurious, it would be opaque it would not be authentic it wouldn't actually have integrity it would it might be funny I might be able to write a funny speech uh you know I slipped on a banana peel kind of a a speech I might be able to write something that was poignant I might be able to craft a narrative that would have some kind of impact but I knew that it wouldn't come from my heart or my gut and so I wrote what came from my heart and my gut. I followed some kind of inner voice and it was very clear and that speech rolled out off of my fingers and onto the screen in, I don't know, half an hour. So, so the mental illness that you're talking about is, is I think it's diagnosed in the end as, as postnatal depression and yet you didn't think you were suffering it because you sort of thought of postnatal depression as I think I think of postnatal depression. Can you just talk about that general feeling that people have about those words, postnatal depression, and, and maybe what the reality is? So, so eventually I was diagnosed with postnatal depression. But really by the time I had my breakdown, it was just garden variety depression and anxiety. It was something that I had realised I had previous experience with, from my other two babies, this incident happened after my third child was born. I had experienced these things in a milder form after my first two babies and never sought any treatment, uh, never talked to anybody about it. I just thought that I wasn't really handling being a new mum very well. And that was about the sadness, about the feeling of severe loss of control, not sleeping, not eating very well. But it never occurred to me that there might be something chemical about the situation or that it might be treatable. 
And I lived after the third child, I lived with a version, either uh, very severe or more bearable, for really two years before it ground me down. So my daughter was um, two and a half by the time I got treatment. And by the time I eventually did go and see a doctor, she said, it's extraordinarily that you have gotten this far on your own, but no strength of character and no force of will is going to get you well. Mm. And I had to say to myself, if a doctor that I sat in front of for two hours told me that I had cancer and told me that the treatment was this form of medical intervention, um, I would probably be really sad that I had gotten this illness, but I would follow her instructions. And I had to say that there was a parallel here and that even though this was mental illness, I needed to follow advice. How do you reckon she knows? She kept you there for two hours, right? You went in for a 15-minute appointment and she kept you for eight of them. So, I mean, it might be, maybe that's a really personal question to say, what are the alarm bells for a doctor in that situation? Is it... Is it um... I guess the alarm bells was that I, I was really... I presented very well. I presented as smiley, shiny, forceful assertive but the further she dug in the easier it was to tell that I was on the brink of taking myself out the back door Mm. and and I thank Medicare and socialized medicine and I thank the kindness and generosity of that GP for giving me that time to Mm. get past the hard-bitten glossy exterior and be able to bore in. And I think that it was both a combination of my personality that didn't want to see that I was somebody who could succumb to this kind of illness, but also because, as you say, there's a sort of image of what postnatal depression is, and I don't think I conform to that. You know, I loved my children. I didn't want to not be around them. I was still completely competent. I was working every day. I was going on television with you doing the Einstein factor, Mm. you know, hair and makeup, shiny, you know. You knew me through this era. Would you necessarily have thought, boy, that chick's sick? Not at all. You were. You were. You are the archetype of competence. Every day I've known you through your life, Claire. So, you know, that's why it's an amazing speech, a powerful speech. And uh, yeah, you set it up, and then the second half of this speech, I just, I'm, you know, it'll it'll floor you. It's such a, a beautifully written thing, and you know, and that that description of the woman who sparked you to action, this this policewoman who commits suicide, and that her story is the one that kind of alerts you to the fact that things are wrong. You know, I just, it really just affected me this one. Thanks, Tony, and and. You know, the thing that has floored me is that you're not alone in that. I've had more feedback over a long period of time on this speech than anything else I've ever written. I have gave this speech when I was invited by DFAT to go to China um, as part of Australian Writers' Week a few years ago. And 
I, I spoke in four cities, 17 events over 10 days, and I was asked to give this speech many times. And I had Chinese women standing in line to talk to me for hours afterwards, crying in my arms because they didn't know there was a name for what they felt. They said nobody talked about mental illness. They had never heard the term postnatal depression, but the things that I described in the speech, they felt in their bones. I had men write to me after they came across this speech in the Wheeler Centre's website to say thank you because their wives have suffered postnatal depression and they don't know that they ever really understood how it felt for them, even though they lived with them and lived through it. And I've certainly had women coming to me saying, it's good to know that someone who looks like you feels like I do. Yeah. Because that also takes away some of the shame and the mask that um, we all wear, we all carry around with us every day, I think. You know, we mask, we mask our humanity. And I'm not quite sure anymore why we do it, and I've done it a lot less since then. What I learnt in kind of uh, tripping off the high wire um, in giving this speech and not knowing where I would land with it is that there was a very wide safety net, which was human compassion. And I was caught in a very loving, open spread of receptiveness to what I had to say. And I think actually for me, Tony, one of the most beautiful things to come out of it was that I was contacted by a singer-songwriter called Susanna Espy, who said that when she heard my speech, she realised that my story was her story too. And she asked me whether she could write a song based on the speech. And the lyrics in the song are taken exclusively from words in the speech. And then she's written the most extraordinary song around it uh, that has a, a female choir of some of Melbourne's best vocalists. And whenever I listen to that song, I feel a great sense of belonging and uh, togetherness and strength and a kind of coming home that I could not possibly have anticipated when I sat in my office that day and wrote down the words that felt like they were flying out of my fingers. Well, Claire, we're going to play the speech. Thank you to the Wheeler Centre for letting us use the audio. And also, how could we not play Susanna Espy's song as well? So after the speech, hang around and listen to that beautiful song because it's coming up shortly. Thanks so much, Claire. Thanks for the opportunity, Tony. streaming service that has both Claire Wright documentaries and John Safran documentaries and Tony Wilson documentaries is DocPlay.com. DocPlay is a documentaries-only streaming service. There are thousands of documentaries up there. You'd be supporting an Australian business. Madman Entertainment have got DocPlay up and going. And you'll be devouring the world's best documentaries. Navalny, it's up there. Waco, Terms of Engagement, that was well worth a rewatch. 
There are so many great ones up there. You can sign up at docplay.com forward slash racks forward slash speakola. You get 45 days free trial. It's now time for the speech of the week and no surprises. It is Professor Claire Wright, then just Dr. Claire Wright. The year my brain broke. Her epic fail speech at the Wheeler Centre event on the 30th of July, 2014. Well, the advertising for this event promised you an, a night of tales guaranteed to amuse and uh, I suspect you haven't been let down. I so wish that I also had a funny story to tell you tonight. I wish that I was one of the performers in the annual Melbourne Comedy Festival event, Best Comedian's Worst Gigs so that I could have you all in stitches as I regaled you with anecdotes of falling flat on my face in front of an audience, side-splittingly self-deprecating tales of humiliation, mockery and disgrace that only go to prove what a good comedian I really am. I wish I could tell you about the time that I toppled into a swimming pool at the wake of a prominent sporting identity and had to wear the deceased clothes all night until my sodden ones had been put through the dryer. Unfortunately, that was my husband in the pool, a banana peel moment of truly epic proportions. I even wish I could tell you about the multiple rejections I received for my recent award-winning book and how, after a decade of work, I thought it would, all, it would end up being exiled to the orphanage for abandoned manuscripts before being miraculously rescued from obscurity and skyrocketing to stellar success. But this is not what happened, and the truth, a bidding war between multiple publishers, is not the stuff of short poppy glory. In fact, there's little in my CV that would suggest I should be standing here on this pedestal of failure tonight. I was a straight-A student at a select entry high school for academically gifted girls. I achieved a perfect 100% for my HSC English exam. I received first-class honours for my bachelor and master's degrees, and my PhD thesis won the prize for the best doctoral work in my discipline. I have been awarded merit-based scholarships from the federal government for all my tertiary courses, and a federal grant for my postdoctoral research. My books have been on bestseller lists. My television documentary was a critical triumph and my new documentary series will hit the screens on the 19th of August. So no belly flops or banana peels there. My domestic life is pretty cosy too. <laughs> I met the love of my life in first year university and my husband and I have now been together for 26 years. All of them bliss, he would say with only the hint of an impudent smile. Together we are raising three delightful, healthy children whose company we prefer to most other human or technological interaction. Our warm and hospitable suburban home is filled with food, love and laughter. We have an open door policy with friends and wildlife alike. At the moment we are breaking bread with a dog, two cats, four rabbits, 12 guinea pigs and the ever-present chooks. We have a beach house. So it's perhaps odd that when I was asked by the Wheeler Centre to participate in tonight's panel, 
I knew immediately and instinctively what I would talk about. For me, the two little words, epic fail, cast me straight back to a moment so vivid and visceral it could be yesterday. But it's seven years ago and I'm in a car. I'm in my little navy blue golf and I'm driving back to my beloved husband and beautiful family from a doctor's appointment. I've spent two hours talking to this doctor, a woman I have never met before, but who has kindly spared me eight of her precious 15-minute appointment slots and bulk billed me to boot. It is raining. Or maybe it's not raining, but I am crying so hard that my memory requires windshield wipers to hone its field of vision. I am in a state, but I am also in a car, so I'm stopping at traffic lights and watching out for pedestrians. And I'm talking out loud to myself, repeating two short sentences in a spin cycle of fear and self-loathing. I'm sorry, I have failed. I'm sorry, I have failed. I'm sorry. I drive and I cry and I chant this mantra to the rhythm of the rain, or perhaps into the blinding sunshine. Does it matter? I have no idea who I'm apologising to, but I know without a shadow of a doubt what I'm apologising for. I have failed. Later, I would come to think of 2007 as the year my brain broke. But there in the car that day, all I knew was that I'd left the doctor's office with a prescription for antidepressants, a referral to a psychiatrist, and the assurance that, in the doctor's words, no strength of character or force of will would get me through this. But what was this? This feeling of utter incompetence, this knowledge of my complete inability to pull myself up by my bootstraps, this incapacity to count my blessings, this malfunction of every system I had ever put in place to stave off disaster, avert catastrophe, and neutralise chaos. According to the doctor, who I had to admit was a highly skilled professional, who had not merely raised her, her eyes above her glasses at me and reached for her prescription pad, but rather had listened while I oozed gloom for a whole two hours. According to this doctor, I had severe clinical postnatal depression. My third child, my only daughter, had been born two and a half years earlier. We were instantly bonded in a deep and abiding connection. Every photo shows me beaming with pride and joy. With her birth, I experienced a deep sense of fulfilment and a circle that I wasn't aware was broken had finally closed. And yet, for at least two years, I had struggled with the daily challenge to scale the summit of my own wretchedness. Most days were like snorkeling through tar. Dark, heavy, suffocating days, punctuated by panic and a generalised sense of impending doom. I experienced waking hallucinations of my baby toppling down the stairs, a bomb in her pusher, snakes crawling next to the bunny rug where she kicked happily in the backyard. At night when I slept, if I slept, which was rarely, I dreamed I was falling into a black abyss. 
So this is what it's like, I'd think wistfully as I plummeted into the void, right before I woke bolt upright, mouth dry, heart racing. But this couldn't be postnatal depression, could it? Depressed mums didn't get out of bed and cried all day and shouted at people and didn't want to touch their babies and were afraid they might hurt them. I wasn't any of these things. I went to work, wrote and published, appeared on TV shows and made intelligent, amusing speeches. I had a hot meal on the table every night and clean school uniforms in the cupboard. I had clean hair and happy kids. Yes, I often felt red raw when watching the news or reading the paper, like my skin had been peeled away, gleaning on some deep gut level that it was my fault that a man had thrown his child off a bridge, or a group of teenagers had been mown down by a drunk driver, or a baby's pusher had blown on the, track, the, on the train tracks in a big wind. And yes, I often started walking to the supermarket or the swimming pool or a cafe to meet friends, only to find myself frozen on the spot, certain that going to that place or doing that activity was wrong and that I should have made a different decision, a better decision, and if I'd made that decision, I wouldn't be here now, walking around in circles, unable to make up my mind whether to stay or go, pump full of adrenaline, without a single good reason why I should either fight or take flight, but nonetheless primed for battle, certain I was going mad. On the outside, I was a solid citizen. On the inside, I had fractured into a million little pieces. But it was not until 45-year-old Audrey Fagan, chief police officer of the ACT, was found hanging in her hotel room on a Queensland tropical island in April 2007 that I started to grasp that something was seriously wrong with me beyond my own failure to stop myself from feeling so rotten and acting so crazy. Stories on Fagan's death all took the same line. Why would such a competent, meticulous, successful mentor and mother take her own life? Awesome mum solved all problems but her own, read one headline. Amanda Vanstone was quoted saying, she was always happy, there was never any nastiness about her, she got along well with everybody. Australian Federal Police Commissioner McKeelty said, she was a very professional, very strong woman, and I think that's what has surprised all of us, that because she was such a strong woman, such a determined woman, it's a great lesson to all of us that everybody is vulnerable. None of the articles said that Audrey Fagan had depression, though one story published in the Good Weekend magazine a few months after her death implied it. Reading that piece at my kitchen table, I felt such a profound affinity with Fagan that my blood ran cold. It was not long after that that I found myself a doctor. Now that I am well again, I know of course that confronting the full force of my own vulnerability was not an epic fail. In fact, it was the complete opposite. Only I could make the decision to step back from the brink of the abyss. Only I could start to love myself the way my friends and family loved me. I had to find out for myself that life is not a performance sport 
that achievement is a state of grace, not the sum total of relentless activity. That ego may be a dirty word, but it can also be a ruthless taskmaster. And that hard work often brings just rewards, but it's not what sets you free. Thank you. Thank you, Claire Wright. What a speech. She has another episode up here called You Daughters of Freedom. And that's also the title of one of her books, You Daughters of Freedom. It's well worth a read if you're interested in the suffrage movement and Australian history. Thank you to everyone who's keeping Speakola going. One of the reasons there's been a bit of a pause on the podcast is that it is a largely free endeavour. So every time you donate, you keep me going with this podcast, with the newsletter, with the website. You can go to news.speakola.com. You can go to Patreon and look up Speakola. You can go to the Speakola website and there's places to donate there. Thank you to Doc Play for sponsoring 10 episodes of the podcast. That's greatly appreciated. Thank you to the Wheeler Centre for the audio of Claire's incredible speech. Thank you to the birds and other wildlife here at the Abbotsford Convent for being largely silent during this talk. And thank you also to the patrons who are looking at me now wondering why I am talking into a blue microphone. I'll be back with another Speakola shortly to finish up a song, Susanna Espy's beautiful song. Claire mentioned it during the interview And kindly, Susanna Espy's allowed me to play it. So here it is. I'm sorry with Susanna Espy and friends on backing vocals.
Thank you.